morning, everybody. If you're new to Crossroads, welcome. At this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. Anybody tired of hearing about the Enneagram? I, uh, I'm pretty strong four on the Enneagram. It's a personality test. Uh, four, it's the individual or, you know, need to be different. And so I was thinking about that today. I fit right in at Crossroads, seeing as today is uh, Father's Day. But we're not going to do like a special Father's Day message. It's just life-giving to me to not have to do that and, you know, be a little different than the culture that I grew up in or whatever, you know. And to add insult to injury, actually, we're not doing a Father's Day. We're going to do a text today that's to do with uh, Jesus and his mother. So that's, that's even better. Uh, I'm going to read to you a story from John chapter 2, Gospel of John. The fourth gospel, speaking of being a four... I'm going, to start, I'm going to start calling this the fours gospel. John is not going to write a gospel just like all the other ones. He's going to be a little different. He's going to be a little more creative and artistic. John puts the sin in synoptic. He, he doesn't even use his real name ever. Who would go by a pseudonym? Who would call himself the beloved uh, apostle, Mr. Mysterious here? Uh, weaving all of these different strands and motifs together throughout this work of art. He doesn't care about chronology. I'm not trying to be chrono He's beyond cr chronological order. He's into something creative and artistic. This gospel completes me. <laughs> I, re I really love this. This is perfect. The fourth gospel is the gospel of John. And uh, so I'd like to invite you to go to chapter 2 of uh, St. John. And please stand with me for the reading. Chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that's used for the, by the Jews for ceremonial washing. We call it mikvah. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. But he didn't realize where it came from. Even though the servants who draw the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of God. Continuing on in our series, Meals with Jesus, in uh, proper fashion, we're not studying a meal with Jesus. This is at, well, I guess it's sort of a meal. He's at a, as at a feast, but this is more of the what we call a liquid lunch. Um, 
I know I got to stop cracking jokes. My wife was doing hair for somebody recently, and she said, oh, my husband's one of the preachers at Crossroads, and they go, which one, the, the funny one? <laughs> I'm like, shoot, better tone it down a little bit. But I'll take it. As you uh, read the Gospel of John, you'll start to see that he uh, beautifully ties a lot of different themes together. By the end of the Gospel, in chapter 21, he writes, I, did, I wrote all of this so that you might uh, see that Jesus is the Son of God and believe in him. So this is an evangelistic letter primarily. So we have to see the themes uh, woven throughout of this from an evangelistic term. And my eyes uh, see, or not my eyes, I'm trying to see the signs in verse 11. The signs are one of the motifs he uses uh, throughout this letter. There are seven signs leading up to the resurrection of Christ. This is the first one. Notice how it says this sign was how Jesus began to reveal his glory. It's a glimpse of his glory. I'm going to pause right there and ask, what even is glory? How is glory related to uh, somebody coming to know Jesus? How is this a glimpse of that? And how can, if, if we were to actually participate in revealing Jesus' glory, would that lead somebody to, to know him and believe and put their faith in him? Well, I'm going to start real quick with a tangent on glory just so that we can kind of get in a little bit of the same map here as we travel through this story. Glory, uh, I start in my mind with the Hebrew word kavod, which comes from the root that means weight, heavy, valuable. Belief was back then that the more you ate, the bigger you were, the more important you were because you had more money uh, to eat whatever you want. So big, weighty, valuable, of substance. That I could just stop right there and talk about glory and say, does this bring glory to Christ? Or better yet, does our do our lives bring glory to Christ? Not just at the end of a football game or at the end of a sports event to say, all glory be to Christ, but does our life bear the weight and significance of the glory of Jesus? How does that fit into something that we can participate in that would be evangelistic to somebody in your sphere of influence? To see how much he means to you. The weight that Jesus uh, is the most valuable person that you've ever experienced or been in contact with. This is glory. My childhood church, there was a guy named Hogaboom. They used to sit in the front row, and uh, at, at the end of every song, he would say glory really loud. <laughs> I don't know why he did that. No, it's not a thing uh, in that church. Nobody else does it now, but uh, maybe it should be something. Glory. It just, he just would yell out glory loud. I mean, it's not like a really big church either. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it was kind of awkward, but uh, it left an effect on me. Maybe I'll start doing that. I bet you Will would love that. Glory. Anyways, uh, glory can be even more practical. If you start reading the, the pages of Scripture, you can see that glory interacts with uh, our daily life. Maybe that would be helpful as an evangelistic thing. It, it is practical. It has to be. I mean, Jesus even says, let your light shine before men that they can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. It is connected to things that we're doing. St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, what? Everything that you do, give glory. Do it in glory to God. 
It is connected with how we live our lives and how God interacts with our lives, that he brings meaning and value and weight and significance in a practical way. But glory, is, it, it, it's actually bigger than that. It's not just practical. It, it is in a symbolic way something that we actually understand. Read, read Psalm 19 in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, so now in created things, there's some sort of meaning and substance behind the things that, that draw us into wonder. The majesty of the mountains and the ocean we see uh, draw us into a place where we are able to say, this is giving glory, substance, and meaning, and value to God, the creator, who's uh, amazing and huge and bigger than all this stuff. There's, there's some symbolic uh, drawing out of things that are in, in creation. This is glory. But glory is also something even more than that. As you continue to just think about the Bible and how it uses the word glory, there's something about the manifest presence of God that is connected to glory. I'm thinking the Mishkan, the, tabernac the tabernacle that, that Moses made. All of a sudden, you, you, you can see something tangible, visceral. Glory appears. He, he hides Moses in the right. He, he says, I'm going to pass by and you'll see my glory it's not just a concept. This, this was on his face, shining, the glory. The, tabernacle, uh, the, the temple of Solomon, the same experience. Ezekiel saw the glory leave. I'm thinking Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is, is glorified. You can see something here. There's some sort of uh, connection to the physical presence of God that has a specific and unique uh, designation to it, glory. Think of Isaiah when he sees uh, God high and lifted up, and glory. Glory will cover uh, the earth as knowledge covers, covers the sea. And it's directly connected to the presence of God. So it is something that's to do in practical ways in our life. It is something to do with uh, what we experience and see and, and the meaning behind uh, created things. But it's also something to do with the presence of God. This deep and meaningful, valuable, substantial thing called glory. And I wonder, do any of those things have to do with this story in John? Do any of those three things, are, are, are there, or do we get a glimpse of them in this story? I'd like to uh, use that as a map to walk through three of the interactions that I see in this story. One between Jesus and Mary, one between Jesus and the servants, and another between the groom and the master of ceremony, or the master of the banquet. So let's refresh the uh, first interaction here. A wedding took place in Cana. Uh, Mary was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. It's not that far from their hometown. Jesus goes to Cana uh, several times. Kind of a small town to the north of Nazareth. What's he doing at this wedding? I can think of a lot of different reasons. Maybe one is as it was a family member. Maybe that's how Mary knew what was going on. And uh, Jesus, you know, she brings him in. Juval, maybe it was James. Some people speculate and think uh, Jesus at this wedding. Dear woman, I love that uh, at least I have the... NIV with the stripes on the back. I don't know if you guys says dear woman. I like that because I've always seen this word woman here as sort of a stern. A lot of people make a big deal out of this, this, woman, this way he says woman. 
uh, like he's trying to treat her poorly or strictly or not disrespectful. Of course, he's not sinning, but surely it, this is how you should speak to your mother. Well, maybe, but I have a hard time thinking that this is anything negative or strict or curt uh, because he, t- he talks to everybody in the Gospel of John this way. The, we- the woman at the well. Nobody ever says he's being mean to her when he says, woman, wh- where's your husband? The gal who was caught in adultery. Uh, woman, where are your accusers? Mary in the garden uh, or, or, or by the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, she's crying. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Or perhaps the most endearing moment of all between Jesus and Mary when he's on the cross and he's trying to uh, bring her closer to the beloved disciple. Uh, Woman, here's your son. I think this is the way maybe he talks. (laughs) This is why he's saying to her. It's not a negative thing. And, And I need to hear that because of who I think Jesus is for this wedding and who I think he is uh, for all of us. I'll get into that in a second. Mary knows that Jesus can help, and Mary knows that he is the Messiah. That's why he responds to her as, my time has not yet come. There's a wide belief that the Messiah is going to bring with him wine. In the Talmud, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, you used to read this, this messianic kind of vision of a banquet uh, with choice meats of fine wine. This is something that the Messiah definitely could do. So Mary brings it to him. And Jesus fulfills a practical need. This is the first thing I want to point out that I think is beautiful about this. The most cursory uh, reading of this story, you can just see Jesus fulfills a practical need. He engages in something that's just sort of a, this, there's a need that needs to get met and he just fills it. We ran out of wine, I got wine. I think we're so close to this story being such an iconic cultural uh, uh, idiot, water to wine. I mean, we all know this story that sometimes we, it's hard to see the absurdity of it. I mean, you got to ask yourself, why did John choose to, to put this in the first, as the first thing in his gospel? The first sign. Why did you do like Lazarus or something right out of the gates? Just do, give us one of those. Why did you give us the feeding of the 5,000? What is this water to wine business? especially absurd in the contrast of chapter 1 to chapter 2. I mean, think about this, this high and lifted up Christ of chapter uh, 1. The Lagos that was here was God. The Word was with God. He was creating all things. Nothing that was created was created without Him. He's the light of man. And, and the light is shown into the darkness, but the darkness is not overcome. We have seen His glory. Glory is one from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. What does John the Baptist say? Look, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And then... Could you give us some more wine, please? Like, Jesus, I know you probably want to save the world from sin and death, and, but could you top off this uh, wine glass? I mean, I just, we just ran out of wine, and that's what we need you to do right now. What are we doing here? Jesus is not above meeting practical needs. That's very meaningful to me. Jesus is not above this young, perhaps poor couple 
who is in, a, is in a shameful situation where they might be embarrassed and disgraced in front of their community. They might have financial ramifications from this. If you, if you got, uh, couldn't provide a, a substantial fees for your guests, they might charge you uh, a reimbursement of 50% of the gifts that you were given uh, financially. He's not above helping this couple out. If anybody could have used this as one of those teaching moments, you know, it would have been him. Am I right? I mean, he could have taken the groom aside and been like, what's going on, man? I know. Those are brand new wedding sandals. I mean, come on. What, how much did those things cost? Shouldn't you have uh, been a little more wise with your money? I can see on your bank account here, a thousand shekels for the King Solomon suite uh, in your honeymoon here. That was, a little, that was a little much, man. I mean, you should be a little more responsible. Are you sure you're even ready to, to support a family and, and, and to be married? Not a word. Not a one condescending word to this couple. Not one glance did he say, I'm going to punish you for this. Jesus says, no, you're in trouble. You're the one who's, the sharks are circling and there's blood in the water. It's not me. What's this have to do with me? I didn't do this. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bail you out. This is the first thing John wants us to learn about the Lagos, the Christ, the Messiah. He looks at people who don't deserve it and he says, I will help you. Without a word, I will help you. I will be that person for you. I will be there for you. And sometimes it's not the big things that really get us at our hearts. It's the things that are small and practical that really mean so much to us. And I want us all to look at the Christ on the cross doing the most, fulfilling our most practical need with the eyes of the bride and the groom filling up with tears and saying, thank you, Jesus. You mean so much to me right now that you did that. That's glory. We get a glimpse of glory in this moment of practicality when he says, I got you. I'd like to move into the second interaction. If you all would quit interrupting me. <laughs> I'm just joking. We got tons of time. I was just surprised. Kind of on a roll here. It's practical. It's also symbolic. I got three uh, symbolic things I want to talk to you about as we move forward here. Wine. Uh, jars and idolatry. Wine jars and idolatry. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about wine. When I say the word wine, what does that do for you? If you close your eyes, if I just say wine, what, what happens? Some of you, emotionally, you might be celebrated. You might think, yes, this is, a, this is something we do for celebrating or leisure, relaxing. It's a good part of our life. Some of you might be like, this was the worst part of my life. My family, uh, alcohol has, has hurt us or I've experienced pain and a lot of trauma through this thing and it's negative. Some of you might be not old enough to drink and it's just ambivalent. I don't really know anything about wine. Um, that's fine, I hope. I'm just joking. Um, for the Bible, the Bible's no stranger to wine and actually it is a symbol that means joy, gladness of heart. A symbol for uh, merriment, celebration, and happiness. We can't do much more with this story unless we see that the wine is a symbol for joy. And that Jesus is a provider of an abundance of wine. He's also a provider and the source of unlimited joy. This is a symbol. It's important for us to think about this because what happens when the joy or the wine in your life 
begins to run out. Sometimes I think we search all over the place to get sort, some, some joy and satisfaction and happiness and merriment. We can, we can search all over and, and all of this stuff starts to become depleted. And the last person or place I'm going to go to is Jesus. Why is that? I understand. I mean, I do it. Maybe it's just my worldview of how Christ, like how I assumed he interacted with Mary there. Like being a little more frank or being... A little more frowning. I don't know. What is he saying that for? This has nothing to do with... Like maybe he's not having very much fun. I wouldn't invite him m- maybe to my wedding. Um, he's definitely not the source of joy. Right? Is he, this is joy? He's, he's like, I don't even want to do this. You know, maybe. But I don't think that's accurate. But I think that's been my assumption. Well, what if I had a more historically accurate assumption of who Christ was for this wedding? The rabbi and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. They were there. Historically speaking, from 200 years before Christ to this present day, the ringleader of the celebration at a Jewish wedding is the rabbi. I have seen this with my own eyes. The rabbi and his disciples championing the bride and the groom, pronouncing blessings each day over them and and, uh, expounding on the value of of marriage and family and the language God uses uh, to speak to his people as uh, the bride and and him being the husband. And uh, they, they sing songs and raise them up on their shoulders and dance and carry on. This is all because of the rabbi. This is his job. How does that sit with you about what Jesus is doing at the wedding? In contrast to Aragorn sitting in the corner of the prancing pony, you know, while, while everybody's dancing, the hobbits are singing and dancing on the Lord of the Rings, you know, that's what I kind of saw before was he's kind of detached. Yeah, sure, he's there, but he doesn't want to be. Versus the guy who's maybe a better translation of John 14, the way, the truth, and the life of the party. It makes sense that three commentaries I read this week made a comment that perhaps Jesus and his disciples were the reason they ran out of wine. <laughs> How does that strike you? Is that your Christ? Is, is he, I mean, think about this. Mary might be the one pouring the wine and Jesus comes up for a refill and she's like, they're out of wine. Well, I mean, it's not my fault. He's like... <laughs> Yes, it is, Jesus. You guys, you got to do something. Peter and Jay, they've been hitting it all day. I mean, you got to get us some more wine. It's your fault. Wine runs out in a lot of different things in life. It can run out in our marriage. It can run out in our, just our pursuit of life. But I want to focus really briefly on one thing, uh, faith and spirituality. Often you see, even in the time of Christ and now, people who have had uh, their religion turn into something lifeless. He really wants to, to fix that and help that. Has your relationship with God become as stale as the water in those jars? Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Jesus acted the way he did with those ceremonial jars. Jesus is no stranger to taking a piece of religion that has become stale and that has become merely ritualistic and breathing a new, fresh breath of life and joy into this. He does it with the Sabbath. Sabbath, 
It's become something that never was meant to be. And so he uh, breathes life into it. He does it with prayer. He does it with fasting. Uh, why not now? There's nothing wrong with mikvah. There's nothing wrong with that uh, ritual per se. Well, what if Jesus is actually just doing something very simple here and saying, I want to bring joy into even this too. Apparently it was worth noting to John. And maybe even for you, if you start to think, the things that I'm doing in my religion has become something that's joyless and lifeless. It's become something that's sort of ritualistic. And I've become depleted. Uh, it has become stale, not very healthy. Well, maybe what has happened is you've lost joy in it because you've started to uh, become infected and poisoned with uh, selfishness in your religion. This is one of the main reasons why I think people lose uh, the joy in their faith is because it's become something about you. Become something that is just sort of, you do this, whether it's for your own, uh, you know, opiate, your own, I'm, I'm trying to just sort of make myself feel better. Or, or whether it's just because you feel guilty and you want to just do something to sort of pacify that guilt uh, and make you seem a little bit better. But when we start to give into that, we start to have this ritualistic thing that is just about us, it will become lifeless in your life, become lifeless in the, your children's life, and the people that are around you will start to see this thing is not showing any glory anymore to Christ. This is not something that's, that we would use as an evangelistic tool in your sphere of influence. This is something that is dead. And if that's you, I want to just encourage you to come to Christ with your water and ask him to turn it into wine. Come to Christ with the, the thing that, is, that has become stale and lifeless and pray the prayer that was on the lips of David a thousand years before Christ and say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He's the type of person for you who will do that. He'll do it in a way I promise you, he's, he didn't just do the minimum here. It's like the equivalent of a thousand bottles of wine. I always think, oh yeah, you saved me barely, or whatever. Like I'm barely in the you know, family here, and one more swear word, or one more bad thing that I do, I'm out. I'm done. It's not, I, I barely made it in, and if I mess this up, I'm not there. But Jesus is the type of person who says, I'm going to come through for you. I'm going to fill you up with joy that's way beyond the minimum. You're never going to be able to, to finish this. Well, I bet you some of it is still around somewhere in the Middle East. This is a lot of wine. Don't tell Dan Brown about the Da Vinci Code for the water. Never mind. All right. So, uh, um, I promise Jesus will, will fill you with joy beyond what you could ever ask or imagine. Glory it means a lot. Last thing, I see we still have time for Last thing in that symbol, I said three. The wine, the jars, and idolatry. And this one's a little more extra credit. Um, John is writing this gospel evangelistically to a group of people. There's a widely believed tradition in, in, in the church that he wrote this in the town called Ephesus. In western Turkey, which if you've been following along our study of the Apostle Paul, you know that these cities in Turkey are inundated with Greek and Roman gods and idolatry. 
One of the Greek gods that's been a long-standing worshipped god since well before Jesus, his name is Dionysus. D-I-O-N-Y-S-U-S. Dionysus. If you haven't heard of him, feel free to look him up. He's a very commonly known uh, pagan god. And so Dionysus was the god of wine and the vine, god of life, the god of uh, fertility. And he was worshipped by getting drunk. Free wine was passed out. You were able to, to drink. The more drunk that you got, the more in the spirit of Dionysus you were. Now, this was such a belligerent, uh, you know, festival that would happen on an annual basis that five emperors in Rome outlawed it from even, or banned it from even being celebrated in Rome. That, I mean, that should put in perspective to you how big and crazy Dionysus Fest is. Is anybody Founders Fest this weekend? I mean, it's probably way, way past that. Um, but the crazy thing about Dionysus Fest was that the denouement of the whole celebration, the pinnacle was the priest would take a large portion of water and lock it up in the temple. And then the next day, a procession of people would come. They would unlock it. And legend has it, Dionysus would come at night and fill the, the water. It would turn it to wine. Now, you're sitting in Ephesus, and the Gospel of John is just hot off the press. It's being circulated around these cities. And the first thing you read about the Christ is a major confrontation to your worldview. Who's the real deal? Who's providing real wine? Now you have to, you're caught between a choice, between an idol and between Jesus. I think this is really important. That's why I'm saying it is that we uh, have a Christ who's portrayed as the, per, the real deal and not a watered-down version of it. Dionysus is a watered-down version. It's something that is promising joy, promising uh, spiritual fulfillment, but never actually completes that or never actually lasts. We settle for Dionysus. Sleeping around is a watered-down version of a better wine that Christ has set aside for, for the covenant of marriage. We settle for watered-down wine when we cast our, our anxieties and our cares and our worries onto a human president or, or a political figure and say, you can make me happy. You can support me, my, my comfort and my desires. It's a watered-down version Instead of bad things, a watered-down version of something that is way better, much better wine, is to cast our anxieties and cares upon Christ. If you have a religion right now that is centered on yourself, your selfish desires, and, and making you happy, it's a watered-down version of what you could actually have. The wine from Christ, the joy that he can put into your life, into all of your rites and rituals and, and uh, religion. Bring it to him. I know it's settled for Dionysus. This is glory. It can be found in, in these big symbolic images of created things and things that we're working through um, as humans. Now, the last thing that I want to bring up um, is the last interaction. Um, the last interaction that Jesus has here is um, between the groom and the master of ceremony, or the master of uh, the banquet. Everyone brings out cheaper wine first, but you, after the guests have had too much drink, have brought out choice fine. The, you've saved the best until now. The last thing I'd like to share with you is sort of a, a connection to what I said before, is that the glory of God is revealed in the manifest presence of God. I believe that better wine is still to come. 
I believe that Jesus is giving us a sign here. It's not just a story that's succinct in and of itself, but it's something that's pointing us to the future. That he is the type of Savior who would actually save the best for last. This is important to me because I've spent a lot of my life kind of waddling back and forth between waddle. Yeah, yeah. I've been back and forth between uh, do I want him to come back right now or do I want him to wait? I'd be fine if you waited till I got married. I'd be fine if you waited till I got my new motorcycle. I'd be fine until, you know, just, you know, don't worry. And maybe you aren't as analytical of your own self as me, but you might be functionally uh, living this way with an assumption that it, it could be as good as it's going to get now. This might be as good as it's going to get, so I'm going to invest everything that I have into, you know, my physical body, into, you know, getting as fit and crazy as I can be right now, because it might, this might just be as best as it's going to get. Or I'm, I'm going to invest everything that I can into right now, because uh, in my business, or my financial uh, status, or whatever, because uh, this is as good as it's going to be. I believe that the best wine is yet to come, and this is not as good as it's going to be. That is a lie to cause us to, to be uh, self-centered and self-focused. The Bible affirms a physical and historical return of the king to this world. Some of us get so caught up into what, we'll, what we're doing in the meantime while we wait that we actually forget we're waiting for something. I mean, even all this church stuff that we're doing as awesome as it is, in a sense, is plan B to plan A. Plan A would be for Christ to return, and then we all just follow whatever he's trying to do. Plan B is, is somebody say something, you know, helpful and sing some songs and let's pray for each other. Help I mean, that's awesome, but this is going to be an age that ends when the Messiah returns. We get so wrapped up into all of this that we forget that. And we become fearful. We become uh, self-oriented. We become uh, stingy, less generous. We, we become people that are just trying to make what I have right now as best as I possibly can. And if that's you, I would, I would challenge you to start praying the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. and Find the meaning of the phrase, thy kingdom come. Of course, his kingdom has already come. He said that when he came, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is within you. And amen, it is. And I see glimpses of it. When I see, you know, a bride and a groom cry. When I see, uh, you know, a, an orphan being adopted. When I see uh, life change, that there are glimpses of the kingdom of God here and now. But when I say thy kingdom come, I'm talking about the king of the kingdom coming to this world, ruling and reigning in righteousness and justice and righting all the wrongs that have ever happened. Thy kingdom come. I want to see the king return in a way and lead us in a way that, that brings peace to our politically fragmented and polarized society that's so frustrated with each other that we can't do anything anymore. I want to see the king come and make sense of all this. Help lead us, unite us together to be a people who love each other even though we complement and contrast one another. Thy kingdom come is the king who says, I have come to liberate the captive. I'm going to set the prisoner free, and not only that, but I'm going to heal and restore anybody who has been abused and abandoned and neglected. The king is going to come, and he is going to restore and recon provide reconciliation for, 
relationships between us and God, between us and one another, who, who have been affected by racism, by anger, by hatred and violence for one another. He will restore them. But that kingdom come means that the sight of the blind is recovered, that the hungry are no longer hungry, that the thirsty are no longer thirsty, that this planet is healed from all the havoc that we've um, wreaked on it. This, this is the king coming. And our heart's desire is, is that he would return as soon as possible because it will be better than it is now. Glory, baby. <laughs> Glory! It will be better. Let me hear it. And this is his glory. He will come in glory. We carry that in our hearts because that's hope. It's hope that it's going to be better. And if it is going to be better, then that gives us the courage and bravery to be able to do the right thing now. Be able to do the hard thing now. And in all that we do, when we do the hard thing for the Lord, it brings him glory. Amen? I'm going to invite the band back up to uh, lead us in a time of prayer and worship um, with one word of application. Other than everything I've already said, just pray about it. Think about it. If you, uh, you know, are a type of person who feel like um, you haven't invited Jesus to the wedding yet, you know, invite him and, and invite him into your practical need. Invite him into the thing that you're suffering through or worrying about. Um, and, I, and, and see if he brings any joy into your, into your life and meets that. If you're somebody who feels like your religion needs a little bit of joy, you feel like you've gotten a little stale, pray for the water to turn to wine for you today. If you've got idols in your life, let them be contrasted and broken down by the gloriful, glorious, true Jesus Christ. And if you haven't prayed, come Lord Jesus, come in a while. Just ask, you know, to, just, to give you a fresh sense of the bride who's waiting for the groom. Blessed is he who's at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what we're looking forward to. The Messiah coming and bringing fine wine and choice meat. And bringing us into a celebration of peace and shalom that we've all longed for and waiting for forever. The practical word that I have is, is that if you don't really know what to do next, uh, I would take Mary's advice from verse 5. You know Mary said to this uh, servant, it kind of rings in my ear. Do everything that he says for you to do. That's a good place to start. If you don't know what Jesus is asking of you, then um, read Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Memorize it. Start to get prayerful about it. Start to think, am I going to do something that he asked me to do? Do everything he asked you to do. When he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Don't be judgmental. Uh, don't, you know, don't prop yourself up as holier than somebody else. Do everything that he tells you to do. If he says to be reconciled with a brother that, that you've got, that's got something against you before you come to worship, do everything he says for you to do. Become a people who say, I'm going to bring glory to God by doing everything that he says for me to do. And, and we could be a church that really just sort of makes that our mission. I promise when you, when you do that, you're going to start to see blessed are the poor in spirit. Merciful will be shown mercy. Those who mourn will be comforted. You start to get into that world of doing what Christ is to do. Those who longer and th hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Amen.